Hi guys, welcome to the next episode of the OBG Med Student Podcast. My name is Dr. Tess Chase and I'm one of the residents at Penn State Hershey. Um, today I have with me Dr. Tanya Wright. She is the clerkships director and we'll be going through uh, disorders of the breast with you today. If you're interested in following along in our textbook, you can find this information in chapter 33 of the 8th edition of Beckman and Ling. Additionally, you can find this in topic 40 of the APGO learning objectives. If you'd like to follow along online, you can go to apgo.org backslash students. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I'm so thrilled to be here to talk through the disorders of breasts with you um, and for Dr. Chase to ask me some questions. Great, so we'll get started with a case presentation. That's how the format of this will go. We'll try to work through this and hopefully you can teach us some of your medical decision making as we go along. Awesome. The case starts out as a 56-year-old G0P0 presenting with a small lump in the right breast that she's been able to feel for about two months. On exam, there are no apparent skin changes, asymmetry, or skin dimpling. Axillary and supraclavicular lymph nodes are not palpable. There is a firm area approximately one centimeter in diameter with indiscrete borders at nine o'clock of the right breast. Let's review some breast anatomy, Dr. Wright. Sure. So the breast is organized into 12 to 20 lobes, each consisting of lobules that drain into terminal ducts, which then ultimately drain into lactiferous sinuses that then empty through six to eight openings in the nipple. The lobules consist of milk-producing alveoli surrounded by myoepithelial cells to allow for milk ejection. The blood supplies the internal thoracic artery and the lateral thoracic arteries for the upper outer quadrant. There is a disproportionate amount of glandular tissue in the upper outer quadrant, and so this is really important with your breast examination to focus on these areas. This is also the number one area that breast cancers are diagnosed. In young women, the breasts consist predominantly of glandular tissue. However, after menopause, the breast consists mostly of fat. What's the proper technique to perform the breast exam? I'm glad you asked. I like to think of this as three different steps. The first step would be inspection. So that's when you'll have the patient actually in a seated position and you can start by having them put their arms to the side and you're just looking. And furthermore, you can have the patient put their hands on their hips, kind of pressing down against their hips or with their arms raised over their head. If the breasts are really large and pendulous, you can even ask the patient to lean forward so that the breasts hang free from the chest. Some asymmetry is common, but looking for market differences or recent changes is really the goal of this first step. Okay. The second step is palpation. This is the step that you may be most familiar with. This is when you have the patient in the supine position. You'd have them raise their arms behind their head and then with slow and careful movements, with the flat part of your fingers, being careful not to use the fingertips, but the finger pads, you're gonna wanna move down in a wave-like motion. The pattern could be radial, or it could be linear, or wedge, whatever really makes you feel comfortable. The goal here, though, is to cover the entire breast area. The final piece, and not to forget to do this, Dr. Chase, would be to examine the axilla and the supraclavicular fossa for lymph adenopathy. And one more thing, during the inspection, Dr. Chase, you wanna make sure that you're also looking for skin changes. 
Yeah, and you also want to make sure that in your palpation that you express for nipple discharge. So let's get back to our case. Dr. Wright, what's your next step in this patient's management? All right, so you find a mass on exam or the patient describes a mass. Imaging is always warranted. The mammogram is the gold standard for screening for breast cancer in women over the age of 40. However, when a mass is palpable, a mammogram alone is not sufficient. This patient should have a diagnostic mammogram. What's the difference between a diagnostic and a screening mammogram? I'm glad you asked, Dr. Chase. When a patient presents for preventative care without any complaints and she's at average risk for developing breast cancer, we recommend screening mammograms if they're over the age of 40. Diagnostic mammograms, on the other hand, are utilized for patients that are presenting with a specific complaint or they've had a mass palpated on exam or skin changes or something that makes you concerned. A diagnostic mammogram will have additional views that are above and beyond what are performed for screening mammograms and will also utilize ultrasound technology to focus in those areas of concern. So what would be your next step in a patient who is under the age of 40? Right, so patients that are under 40 will typically have denser breasts, so this makes abnormalities really hard to discern on mammography. Ultrasound would probably be the way to go here. What about MRI? Yeah, MRI you typically want to reserve for high-risk patients, so patients that are BRCA or BRCA carriers, for example. What's the BRCA? So BRCA or BRCA1 and 2 are autosomally dominant inherited tumor suppressor gene mutations that can actually increase your risk of ovarian and breast cancer in the future. Oh, those are the ones that are involved in DNA repair. Exactly. So what are some other risk factors for breast cancer? Well, the strongest known risk factor is patient's age. You'll hear um, oftentimes quoted the risk of breast cancer as one in eight but this actually represents a cumulative lifetime risk. For women between the age of 50 to 59, for example, the lifetime risk is actually one in 36. Between ages 70 to 79, one in 24. Other risk factors are numerous. Allow me to mention them. Smoking, a prior personal history, mammographic dense breast, a family history, especially a first-degree relative diagnosed at an early age, nulliparity, late childbearing, particularly patients that have had their first pregnancy over the age of 30, early menarche or late menopause, fibrocystic changes with atypia, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, a history of breast radiation, hormone exposure, obesity, excessive alcohol use, and patients that have never breastfed. So what if you get an ultrasound and the findings reveal a cystic mass? Well, you would use an ultrasound to guide you through cyst aspiration. If the fluid is clear and non-bloody and the mass completely disappears on ultrasound, then you may discard the fluid. Otherwise, the patient should undergo a breast biopsy. Conversely, what if the ultrasound shows a solid mass? Solid masses are slightly more concerning depending on the patient's age, and so you would absolutely want to obtain a histologic specimen for diagnosis.
Most commonly, this can be done with a core needle biopsy or alternatively, an open breast biopsy. Oftentimes in my clinic, when patients come in with breast complaints, they complain of pain. How do you treat that? Yeah, breast pain is quite common actually, also known as mastalgia. This may be cyclic, typically in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, or non-cyclic, associated with certain drugs like antihypertensives, antidepressants, hormones, tumors, mastitis, history of breast surgery, or idiopathic. There are some non-pharmacologic treatments. For example, instructing the patient to wear a tight-fitting bra or sports bra, or weight reduction and regular exercise. In terms of medications, there's really only one FDA-approved medication for this, and it's called Danazol. However, this has a number of undesirable side effects and is not typically used clinically. Okay. So another complaint that I see very commonly is nipple discharge. What do we do about that? Yeah, you know, nipple discharge could be abnormal or it could be physiologic. To tease this out, you want to ask the patient, is the nipple discharge unilateral or bilateral? Is it spontaneous or expressed? And what color is it? Most benign conditions will be non-spontaneous, meaning it's expressed, It'll be non-bloody and other shades of green or yellow, and it may very well be bilateral. Bloody nipple discharge is concerning for cancer and ductal papilloma, and the next step would be ductography. Okay, so going back to our patient, what are some of the features that would make you concerned that this could be malignant? The patient's age in this particular case, 56, does put her at a higher risk but also other concerning features would be a size greater than two centimeters, immobility of the mass, having poorly defined margins, firmness, skin dimpling, retraction of the nipple, bloody nipple discharge, and ipsilateral lymph adenopathy. If this patient had mammography showing suspicious findings such as calcifications or a discrete mass, what would be the next step? This patient should undergo a corneal biopsy and the tissue sample should be sent for histologic examination. Okay, so let's talk about common benign breast masses. What are some of those? Yeah, there are three histologic categories of benign breast diseases and these are based on the degree of cellular proliferation and atypia. The first group are the non-proliferative lesions the relative risk of developing breast cancer is one. These include your fibrocystic changes, fibroadenomas, cysts, fibrosis, and adenosis. Fibrocystic changes are most common, the most common benign condition, commonly presenting as cyclic, bilateral pain and engorgement, and on ultrasound, it has a characteristic sack of marbles appearance. Also in this category are the fibroadenomas. This is the second most common benign breast lesion and typically occurs in young women between the ages of 15 and 35. These are firm, painless, mobile masses and can increase in size during pregnancy or with estrogen but generally does not increase the risk of cancer. To treat these, you can repeat imaging or observe However, if they're enlarging or problematic for the patient, they can be excised surgically. The next category 
are the proliferative lesions without atypia. The relative risk of developing breast cancer from these lesions is 1.5 to 2. These include epithelial hyperplasia, sclerosing adenosis, and papillomas. Intraductal papillomas are found mostly in peri- and postmenopausal patients, and they will tend to present with bloody or serous or turbid nipple discharge. Excisional biopsy is oftentimes needed. And the final category are the proliferative lesions with atypia. The relative risk of developing cancer are 3.7 to 5.3. In this category, we have atypical ductal hyperplasia, or ADH, atypical lobular hyperplasia, or ALH, and many people would include lobular carcinoma in situ in this category as well. Lobular carcinoma in situ is a non-invasive lesion that carries a risk of breast cancer in the ipsilateral and contralateral breast with a relative risk of two. How would you manage a patient whose biopsy shows ADH, ALH, or LCIS? Yeah, so these lesions are the proliferative lesions with atypia, and as we discussed, the relative risk of cancer is 3.7 to 5.3. These lesions have to be excised surgically since there is a risk that they can be upstaged to malignancy at the time of excision. For example, ADH is upstaged to ductal carcinoma in situ or invasive cancer and approximately 10 to 25% of all excised specimens. Wow, that's a lot. So for patients with ADH, is there anything that can be done to prevent it from becoming ductal carcinoma in situ or invasive cancer? You certainly want to follow these patients very closely, performing screening mammograms and following along with the recommendations from a breast surgeon. They may be candidates for chemo prevention as well using selective estrogen receptor modulators such as tamoxifen. Tamoxifen has an antagonist effect on breasts and has been found to reduce the risk of invasive breast cancer. Keep in mind though that it does have an agonist effect on the endometrium. Aromatase inhibitors are also used in postmenopausal patients for this reason and they work by decreasing the conversion of androgens to estradiol in the periphery. Can we talk about some of the malignant types of breast tumors? Absolutely. So breast cancer is the second most common malignancy in women and is the second leading cause of cancer-causing death in women. There are three histologic cell types. You have ductal, lobular, and nipple. 70 to 80% of them are ductal in origin. Two-thirds of all cases are ER and PR positive. Treatment will depend on the hormone receptor status, the nuclear grade, and the HER2 new expression. Treatment options may be surgical, so lumpectomy plus radiation, or a mastectomy. Or treatment may be medical, with chemotherapy and hormonal therapy. So let's talk about the different types of breast cancer. DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ. This is when cancer cells fill portions of the ductal system without actually invading beyond the ducts into the basement, past the basement membrane. Invasive ductal cancer, on the other hand, is when those cells do make their way through the basement membrane, and this is how 80% of all breast cancers present. Women that are perimenopausal or postmenopausal are particularly at risk and will typically present with a solitary firm mass with poorly defined margins. And then there's invasive lobular cancer. This represents 15% of all breast cancers. And then there's inflammatory breast cancer. 
rapidly progressive dermal lymphatic invasion of breast cancer presenting with that poudrage skin changes, and finally Paget's disease, which presents as eczematous patches on the nipple associated with underlying DCIS or invasive breast cancer. So who should be screened for breast cancer? NCCN and ACOG makes the following recommendations. Women at average risk of breast cancer should be offered screening mammography starting at age 40. If they have not initiated screening in their 40s, they should begin screening mammography by no later than age 50. The decision about the age to begin mammography screening should be made through a shared decision-making process. This discussion should include information about the potential benefits and harms. Women at risk for breast cancer should have screening mammography every one or two years based on an informed shared decision-making process that includes a discussion of the benefits and harms of annual and biennial screening and incorporates patient values and preferences. Women at risk of breast cancer should continue screening mammography until at least 75 years. Beyond age 75, the decision to discontinue screening mammography should be based on a shared decision-making process informed by the woman's health status and longevity. What is self-breast awareness? Current recommendations discourage self-breast exams, but encourages self-breast awareness. Self-breast awareness is defined as a woman's awareness of normal appearance and feel of her breast and is associated with an increased likelihood of earlier detection of breast cancer. So going back to our patient at the beginning of this podcast, what was the final outcome of her workup? So our patient underwent a diagnostic mammogram which revealed dense breast tissue but no other mammographic abnormalities. We then encouraged her to follow up for routine screening mammogram and to practice self-breast awareness. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of The OBG Med Student. 